said, Dan, you call me all the time. Just text me. It's easier because then I can look at the text and I can just answer back. And he said, Machete, don't text. And I said, oh, I'm going to put that in the movie. <laughs> you could have at least texted me. Machete, don't text. Today on the podcast, we explore the life of Danny Trejo. You probably know Trejo as that badass-looking dude with the long hair and the Fu Manchu mustache who's always kicking ass. He had super memorable scenes in Desperado and Heat. Before he got into the movies, Danny robbed liquor stores, sold drugs, and served time in San Quentin. After getting released from prison, he went straight, and then he helped others as a drug counselor. I'm Todd Melby, and our guest on this episode is Brett Harvey, the director of Inmate Number 1, The Rise of Danny Trejo. Harvey's a documentary filmmaker who lives in Canada. Before making Inmate Number 1, he made The Union, The Business of Getting High, and The Culture High. As I talk to Harvey about his Danny Trejo movie, you'll hear references to a few people, including Robert Rodriguez, the director of Desperado, and the wildly popular Machete. There's also a reference to Eddie Bunker, Bunker, now deceased, is a Hollywood legend. All right, let's do this. Brett Harvey is our guest today. He's the director of Inmate Number One, The Rise of Danny Trejo. You never went to acting school or any of Well, I, I actually, I, I trained in at St. Quentin Drama Arts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the first time you saw Danny in a movie. The first time I, <laughs> I actually can specifically remember it. We were in the basement of a friend's house. Uh, we were on a DVD at that point. No, we were on VHS at that point. We were all watching. It was Desperado. And he didn't have a single line in the movie, but you came out of that movie with who the hell was that guy? You know, And, and from then on, he was uh, basically referred to every time you saw him as, hey, that scary looking guy's in this movie. You know, the one from Desperado. And so then he showed up from Dust Till Dawn. And now, for your viewing pleasure, the mistress of the macabre, the epitome of evil, the most sinister woman to ever dance on the face of this earth. Fight this! Lonely dog! Bow your head. Kneel and worship at the feet of Santanico Pandamonium! Paint a picture for me of you and your friends in the basement. Were you eating Doritos? Did you have a beer? Were you smoking pot? What were you doing? <laughs> I hate to say it, but probably just about all of those. I think at that point, we still weren't smoking pot because it was pretty illegal. That came later. But yeah, I think we had had amaretto. We, had, we were in actually the buddy's uh, hot tub, and we had come out, all of us. <laughs> and yeah, we were eating probably Doritos at that point. And I think all of our jaws dropped. You know, he started twirling those knives. Danny's face at the time is, it just looks like it's been through about eight war battles. Just, just, and mean looking. Just, he has a look of, you know, he'll he'll kill you, your brother, your sister, and your mother. Like, that, that's the kind of look. And that actually stems from his prison time. He had to have a look like that in prison to survive. But, uh, yeah, that was basically basically what he had looked like to us on screen at that point. And it was funny because uh, this isn't in the movie, but Robert had mentioned that when they were down shooting uh, in the various areas of Mexico, all, everybody there almost thought Danny was actually the star at the time. And this was the first time Danny was in like a kind of bigger type role. He, he wasn't known until Desperado. And so it was kind of funny because they kept 
you know, asking about Danny and, and running up to Danny on set just because of the way he looked. He was so gnarly looking that they were thinking, this guy must be one of the stars, if not the star of this movie. <laughs> Nobody wants the pretty boy Antonio Banderas. Yeah, well, yeah, and and I, uh, Danny's background, I think, is also more relevant to where they were shooting, too. Uh, I think he he comes from that area. So there you were watching Danny in Desperado, and then what other movies do you remember seeing him in after that, just as, as a movie fan? For sure, next came uh, From Dust Till Dawn, uh, another one, and he fit that role perfect because it was vampires. I don't know how much makeup they put on Danny, but he sure fit that role really well as well. And then the, I'm trying to think of the next one. I think the next one that came was Heat. Heat was one that I think now people are realizing how relevant Danny was in that film, not not just as being a scary guy who who was a prisoner in the past and can relate to this, but the fact that he and Eddie Bunker were also consultants on it. They, you know, just to an extent of how the criminals would carry out their various acts when when robbing places because they had both done it before so they knew what it was like danny had mentioned at one point too when michael mann had asked the actors to walk into a bank with a gun danny said no i'm okay i know what that feels like already So this this producer approached you with the idea of doing a yeah uh, a f- <laughs> yeah so yeah, I'd like everybody else. I knew him as a scary-looking guy on the screen, and I wasn't fully aware of how d- deep his story went. And once I had looked at that, I was like, "Yeah, this is the next one for me personally." And then they they were on board with that as well. They they thought it was a very cool one to take on. So I took uh, a, basically a month at that point off, and I just researched his entire life online. I uh, I wrote a, a hardcover little pitch book and found pictures and stuff, and we printed out a big pitch book, hardcover one that we brought down to Danny, and because we hadn't convinced Danny yet, he had, you know his story's so amazing that there's there's a lot of people who were interested in making it. How hard was it to convince Danny? Well, when he saw the book, that was it. It was done. He was he pointed at it, literally tapped on it with his index finger, and said, "These are the guys. These are the guys to do it." And why'd you decide to tell the story of Danny Trejo chronologically? Well, his just fits it so perfectly. You know, there's a there's a bit of a, a tease of what comes in the end on the opening, just so you have an, a, an idea of how deep his story goes. What's up? What's up? What's up, fellas? <laughs> My name's Danny Trejo. Some of you might have seen me once in a while on TV. I, uh, I'm kind of at a loss for words because I, uh, first of all, I, I love doing this. You know, this is one of the things that has kept me out of prison since 1969. But yeah, we jump right away into his childhood because it, it basically, it's the best way to showcase how the, the message in the movie, which is no matter how far down you've gone on a path, there's always time to restructure your life or approach it differently, and you don't have to be a product of your past. And so to do that, it's it was really important to showcase, number one, how Danny fell into that life, and then just how deep he fell into it, and then his process of recovering from that. Just on an emotional level, that was the most effective way to approach it, because if you understood 
how he got to where he was and how bad it had gotten, it just made that message on the end that much more powerful of, of hey, he got through all that. For folks who haven't seen the movie yet, tell us about Danny's childhood. Danny's childhood actually started off pretty darn good. Uh, he He initially lived with his grandma and all his girl cousins. And so Danny had a pretty awesome life for a while there. Eventually, Danny ended up back with his dad. With Danny's dad was Danny's dad's stepbrothers. And there was so he had moved from this house of all women and uh, this kind of really loving environment to this pretty hardcore uh, environment of of a bunch of brothers who lived together. And one of the brothers happened to be a full-on gangster. And Uncle Gilbert had fallen into the life of heroin. I can remember the day that I wanted to be just like him. My grandfather was like a tyrant. And I'll never forget, he was mad at me and Gilbert. He was standing in front of us, and he was screaming, and I knew he was going to hit me. And I'm kind of like winching so I won't shit and he won't hit me. And then I look over at my uncle. He's falling asleep. And Danny didn't fully understand why that was. Well, why that was was because Gilbert was doing heroin at the time, so nothing was really affecting him. We're staring in the face of death. He goes, and he walked into his room. And Gilbert goes, did he hit us? You know, <laughs> I just, I prayed to God, let me be like that. So Danny eventually ended up at 12 years old uh, shooting heroin for the first time. And then once that took place, that was kind of it for him. It, you know, became a process of, well, how do you, how do you fuel that heroin addiction? Or also, how do you impress Uncle Gilbert and, and live that lifestyle of the gangster? And for his teenage years, he started doing armed robberies left and right. And in the movie, you revisit some of those places. Yes. First robbery was the Far East Market. Had a gun. The revolver that didn't stay up. It would fall and you had to hold it like this. Yeah, why don't we talk about uh, Danny's prison years for a bit? He was at multiple California state prisons. The majority of his time was spent in San Quentin, and he became kind of a higher-level figure, respected figure in there, for numerous reasons. One is because of his nature and his reputation from the street. That carried over into prison. He played that role still in prison. He had a lot of probably high-level friends in prison at the time, too. But the other thing that Danny did in prison was that he was an insane good boxer. Uh, he had the welterweight and lightweight title in San Quentin. I think he may have also had the title in uh, Soledad at one point. And I believe uh, Danny learned how to box while in prison, right? No. The, the gangster uncle that we were talking about was a Golden Gloves boxer, and, and he was in the Army. He would box in the Army, and he was very, very good. And so he started training Danny when Danny was a teenager. And so Danny had to learn how to box or he was going to get his, his butt whooped by his uncle. And, and then, yes, that he had carried that through his teen years. He had also uh, he, he had carried that into the, the prison 
And of course, so he arrived in prison already a ready good to go. Or very good boxer. Yes, and then of course in prison you have more time to do training. So I think he his level of boxing was stepped up even from there. And for him, he views it as a way that it probably saved his life in prison because it kept him out of a lot of trouble and also just gave him a reputation that people respected him within prison. Yeah. And what age did Danny go to prison, and what age did he get out, approximately? Well, Danny was in and out of juvie and and various like jails his entire youth, so all through his teen, teen years. I don't think it was it wasn't until uh, roughly maybe nineteen or twenty though when he actually started entering the the state penitentiaries where he did the hard time, and that was actually for bunk sales of of narcotics. At that point, he was he had sold pure sugar to a federal agent and he still got uh six years at that point for for selling that yeah so he ended up in the state penitentiaries probably for a good six years i don't think he got out till he was 26 and that of course uh was after he faced three counts of the death penalty that stemmed from a riot that he he may have incited or may not have and uh i rock that he possibly had thrown uh, and hit a guard in the head. Um, we have to still say allegedly at this point. So Danny had a friend who had, I don't know, was it Chino he had come up from? Sorry, I haven't watched the film in a year now. It's been a while. <laughs> right. um, but anyways, his, his friend had come up from at what at the time was considered kind of almost a mental institute type prison. He had been getting shock treatment. And he, so he had just come back to San Quentin and he, so he was kind of still riled up and a bit off his rocker and uh, uh, at the time they allowed teams from the public to come in and play baseball against prison teams still then like think of that that would never happen today but they 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 did that back in the day and Danny was on the sidelines uh with his friend and his friend kept talking about how the one guy was chewing bubble gum and how he wanted some of that bubble gum. And Danny started teasing him with it. And so the guy ended up running up to the guy with the gum and reached in his mouth and tried to rip out the bubble gum. That's how crazy this guy was at this point. That incited a riot. And everything just exploded at that point. And at some point, allegedly, Danny had thrown a rock. Now, I don't think he was trying to hit a guard if he had allegedly thrown it. But it did hit, hit, a, hit a guard, and so that's an automatic, you're, you're facing the death penalty back then if you're attacking a guard like that. And he faced three counts of it, and he ended up in solitary confinement for three, three months. Which is what prisoners call the hole. Exactly. I thought one of the most fascinating parts of the movie was Danny in the hole, and he's telling the story about what his mental state was when he was in the hole during the day, and he's in the hole at night. And he's really trying to keep sane. And to keep sane, he recited lines and sang songs from a classic American movie. And I would act out The Wizard of Oz. Give me those shoes, Dorothy! All this whole crazy movie just to keep my brain going. The lollipop kid, all that shit. Guards would walk by myself and say, shut up, Trail. The way Danny explains it is you basically have to drive yourself insane to prevent yourself from going insane. By doing so, it kept his mind active and kept him, I guess, connected to, to his past in some way or, or to some shred of the world that existed outside of that cell. And it, it, it got him through it. From the movie, he clearly remembered the songs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he'll still do them today. He can, he can just 
completely recite all of them. When your film revealed that uh, Danny Trejo was a big fan of John Wayne, I wasn't super surprised. I was intrigued. But when your film revealed that he loved The Wizard of Oz, that surprised me. It, it was one of the, the, the tough things with the editing side of things was that there was always something new coming up with Danny after we had finished shooting that was surprising. I, I swear to God, this is true. It, it sounds completely made up, but I was editing or uh, basically going through stuff one day and we were you couldn't add any more to the film and a news story comes on and there's a car flipped over and there's a baby that needed saving. And lo and behold, Danny Trejo... Uh, 75 years old, running to save this baby when everybody else is just watching. Like, it's surreal, some of the stuff that takes place within. Did he actually pull the baby from the burning car? Yeah. He, well, yeah, I don't know if it was burning. I don't know the level. I just know the car was flipped over and he had helped get the baby out. But yeah, he was he was ripping open the door and trying to get the baby out. <laughs> I know. I was, I was Googling things on YouTube a couple of days ago and that came up. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm like, oh. I didn't know about that. Yeah, and it's a daily occurrence. Like, you know, uh, you flip on probably daily now, you'll see clips of him handing out free food from his restaurant to uh, first responders. And my understanding of why he does that, having watched your movie, was that that really helps when he's selfless, when he's actually trying to help other people and expecting nothing in, in return. It just helps him emotionally. It helps him emotionally, and I think just in general, it can change. It changed his life and can change anybody's life. If you look at the course of his life, another thing he describes is when he had up until the point when he faced the death penalty. Danny's mentality, he calls it a gangster mentality. It was a take, take, take mentality. Basically, every situation you look at, you just kind of look at it from the standpoint of, well, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? Why would I do this unless I get something from this? And when he faced that death penalty. Um, he made a promise to his higher power um, that he would shift that frame of mind to being just, look, if you let me get through this, I'll just do whatever I can. And at the time, he was, it was for his fellow prisoner. And then that evolved once he got out of prison to helping just anybody he could around him and to do it without any expectation of a reward or something in return. And for him... That's where everything started turning for him. You know, Danny, Danny eventually uh, got by the three counts of the death penalty because the guard couldn't identify uh, who had thrown the rock. And he got out and he became a drug counselor as a way to, you know, basically get through all this. And, and he did that for 15 years before he ever set on his foot on the step of any Hollywood set. And he became actually pretty famous within that world. He would travel around and do talks and also just drive people to, you know, their sessions and be a mentor. But, but even that all started with when he first got out and he was living back in the neighborhood and he was trying to figure out a way to change his life. He just went over and uh, they had an older lady who was just unable to carry out this great big garbage can to, to the front of her yard. And he just went over and he just grabbed it from her. And at first she was pretty scared because Danny's a scary looking dude. She thought he was going to rob him. And he grabbed it and he just says, ah, give me that. And he just brought it out because he still had that rough nature. And he brought it out to the front of the yard. And then he walked past her and she probably thought he was going to rob something from her house. And he grabbed the rest of her cans and brought them out. And he started doing that with all the neighbors around the neighborhood. And it was a simple act like that that started shifting the way he viewed the world. And once that changed, and once he started doing that, it almost became an, a new type of addiction for him. 
And that new type of addiction, that positivity just bred positivity. And his life from there just kind of skyrocketed into, into orbit. Fifteen years later, one, one of the, the people that he was helping with their addiction, the kid called him up in the middle of the night and was like, Jesus, I got a lot of, there's a lot of cocaine down here where I'm working. And Danny didn't really know where that was. And he, so he thought he was going down to maybe some factory or something to help this kid out. He says, the kid was like, can you come help me out here? I, I think I'm going to use. Danny ended up on the set of Runaway Train. The kid was an actor. And that's why there was so much coke around. And then that's a whole story in itself uh, where he launches into Hollywood. Yeah, so people on Runaway Train were doing cocaine. <laughs> Apparently some of them were, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that was a pretty common thing in the 80s, if my understanding is 80 was, 80s was the year, the, the decade of cocaine use, for sure. With, Would not surprise me with uh, Eric Roberts and that whole game. Yeah, like I, I'm definitely not saying it was Eric Roberts' season. I, I, it was the extras at that time that that guy was talking about, but uh, who knows? Who knows who was using back then? I wouldn't be surprised of any name that I would hear of that might have been using. So Runaway Train is what started it all for for Danny Trejo. It really is. He stepped in there and, you know, it was a prison scene revolving around a boxing match. This is is like just tailor-made for Danny's world. So it's a prison scene revolving around a boxing match. The assistant director sees Danny walk in and, of course, Danny's, you know, the, the way Danny looks, he looks like he would make a pretty good extra for uh, a scene like that so the assistant director runs up to danny and says hey you look like a convict and we think you you, would you want to be in this film and so danny pulls off his shirt and danny has probably the most recognizable tattoo on the planet earth which is uh uh, a lady uh, tattooed on his chest and lo and behold eddie bunker who also was a career criminal and had transitioned into Hollywood and had been in San Quentin at the time that Danny was in there and uh, ran over and he goes, hey, you're Danny Trejo. Didn't you box in San Quentin? Danny said, yeah. The first five years of my career, I just played inmate number one. Prisoner number one, number 10, <laughs> Cholo number one. Essay number one. Gangster number one, gangster number two. Inmate with tattoos. Man yelling. You know, I'll be the bad guy, I'll be the good guy, I'll be the guy that sells flowers, you know, I'll be the dry cleaner. doesn't matter. I'm acting, and what am I getting paid? How long did it take you to get beyond, oh, I'm talking to Danny Trejo, versus, hey, I'm interviewing another guy about his life? I would say after that first interview, uh, it was smooth. It was always smooth sailing, but after that first interview, uh, I, I personally got a lot more comfortable with it. The first interview... We did in a in a warehouse, and it was this big sit-down one, and it was just Danny going over his childhood, basically taking us up to when he had gotten to prison. And we spent maybe four or five hours doing that interview and just kind of going through everything. And part of the comfort level for me was that I think Danny also gained trust at that point, too, that this wasn't some kind of story to sensationalize his crimes that we were actually going to be uh, showcasing the penalties and the results of, of him having gone down that path and and then hopefully a better path forward from that. Well, Danny's a producer on the film, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he is, because he, he connects, connected us with a bunch of the people that we were going to 
you know, have in the film. And, and in the, of course, on the end, too, we had to, to show it to him and make sure that it was accurate to, to what his story actually was. And that was a funny funny moment because we were in a little theater that we had rented down in LA and he had brought all his friends and family and the the film ended and Danny stood up in front of everybody and he goes I'm Danny Trejo and I approve of this movie and at that point it was like <laughs> okay okay this is accurate this is going to this this story is uh is doing it justice at this point okay oh, and were were Danny's kids there too uh one of his ki- children were there yeah it was uh, it was really fantastic to see them in the movie uh, for folks who haven't haven't seen the movie yet, we, there's obviously lots of Danny Trejo, but there's also his his friends, Cheech Marin, uh, some other famous folks, Robert Rodriguez. But I really enjoyed seeing his children. Uh, I mean, one of his kids looks almost exactly like him. Yeah, that was probably. Oh, yeah, it could have been either of them. Oh, G- Gilbert. He was super skinny and had the same kind of mustache. That's Gilbert. I believe Gilbert had actually grown that out for a, a movie role at the time. Ah. So that wasn't like his regular. <laughs> Although, I'll tell you this. Gilbert is one of the coolest looking cats I've ever seen. The way he dresses, he dresses uh, like it's back in the 70s and with his clothes. And he's just got a real cool style about him. But Danny's kids were fantastic. And the insight, of course, that they had gained over the years. They had stories left and right on their own. He first started getting jobs. We'd be on the way to school, and he would say, "Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on," and just pull into this like whole different world. This, you know, these movie sets, and then we just wouldn't go to school that day. And of course, too, then you really got a, a feel for the environment that Danny still lives in today. How you doing? All right. <laughs> the neighborhood we were driving through was his childhood neighborhood. He, he lives in a regular old house just like everybody else. He's just one of the people. When we're driving down the street, we're also getting people yelling out, Machete! Machete cruises! <laughs> Every, again, 40 seconds, which you got to cut around. But that that's cool. We, I could handle Literally that. Literally every 40 seconds or so? Oh, yeah. You got to think we're also in an old Bel Air that he's uh, refurbished, like a beautiful, big, shiny, blue old Bel Air. Right now we're in a 60, I'm sorry, a 56 Chevy Bel Air, 350 Chevy engine. And this is a monster. Now, this is Brantford. This is the street that I lived on. It was really a good neighborhood. You know what I mean? One of the most emotional moments with Danny was when Danny got to watch it with a crowd. We were at Mill Valley uh, Film Festival. Danny was sitting with Mario. And uh, we were at a film festival, sold out screening. They had sold out three simultaneous theaters uh, for the screening of that. And Danny, Danny came to that. And he was able to see that story with an audience laughing along or crying at points or being frightened at points. And I was sitting behind him and he would constantly, you know, lean over to Mario and go, oh, there's so-and-so and oh my God, there's this. And you could see him. He'd forgotten they were even in the movie. He was reliving it as we were watching it. And then there was a standing ovation at the end and, and Danny went on stage. That was that was a pretty cool moment to see him get to experience that, you know, with his kids on the screen talking about him, all his friends, all these people. I was I was really touched by the end of your film, and I think it started around the time when Danny's mother died. Yeah, and and, and I was seeing images of him and his mother together dancing, 
and and then hearing about how much she meant to him. Yeah. And then and then him being on the set of the Muppets movie and Kermit the Frog talk, talking to him about, you know, how Kermit was sorry that his mom had died. Yeah. How tough was that for you to edit having having had your your, your own mother just die? Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever been ever mentioned this to anybody before but yeah i i there was a couple times i actually teared up while i was doing it it just you know at least for the few first few years after you kind of go through a period of time where just it could be a commercial or something just causes you to go back in your brain and you just you get overwhelmed and you you almost you know you, you get a tear in your eye missing this person and I connected with my mom the same way that Danny connected with his mom and the level of respect and love that he had for his mom is what what I had for mine. So everything that he was saying within that completely resonated with me. I had a few nights where I'd be I would I would tear up like no joke. And the interesting thing that I find with the documentary making too is when you are in that post-production and you find yourself emotionally caught up in in in, or by what you're witnessing that you've just seen on the screen now whether you're laughing at it like naturally laughing at it um naturally sad at it that that's a pretty good sign because the whole point of the documentary is to take you on the roller coaster of emotions of of the story and if you're not causing people to feel something whether it's being scared a little bit freaked out whether it's feeling sad whether it's feeling exhilarated or happy then you got to change things up the first sign like that's that's a scary sign to me if i if i see if if i'm going through a scene in the the dock and i'm not feeling something one way or the other something's got to change because you can't have scenes where something isn't moving forward on an emotional level um and it doesn't have to be crazy but there's got to be some kind of uh movement taking place there and then the other thing is is you can't keep them you know at a at 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 the same type of energy for too long of a period because it just gets exhausting if they're, if it's too scary for too long or if it's there's no laughs or if it's too sad that that as well will exhaust people you know and when you exhaust people's emotions in a certain area again they will tune out they'll get bored so it's mm. a constant flow of almost I, I always visualize it as a roller coaster you're just kind of going up and down peaks and valleys well thank you so much for your time today brett thank you i uh i want to thank you for taking such an in-depth look at this this is this has been really awesome and uh, people like yourself are what give legs to a documentary like ours as far as spreading the word and, and taking it beyond just some you know, social media post somewhere. It gives people a real in-depth look into what we do. And it's awesome that, that you're willing to take the time to do it. So I really appreciate you. That's Brett Harvey. Again, his movie is Inmate Number 1, The Rise of Danny Trejo. Danny was like, the white people have Superman, and the black people have Hancock, and the Mexicans need machete! A quick note about The Drunk Projectionist. This is a passion project of mine, so episodes are sporadic. I spent the last few years writing a book about Fargo, the 1996 Coen Brothers movie. Titled, A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, The Untold Story of the Making of Fargo. It'll be published in March 2021. Thanks so much for listening.